going through the process and already have kids. We'd like to get teams of about five people together uh, that support the fostering and adopting families. This way, they uh, can flourish and do everything really well as they care for the children of uh, this city. And so, um, if that's you, if you fit in any three of those, Tuesday night at 6 p.m., Christ Church of Flagstaff, uh, we're going to have this citywide orientation in partnership with eight other churches across the city uh, to, to get together and do this. So if you want to be part of that, we need to know because they would like to have a decent headcount of who's coming. And so please, on your way out today, just write on an info card or talk to someone at the Connect Desk or come and tell me, uh, I want to be at the orientation and we'll get you any other details uh, that you need. Okay. Uh, second announcement is next Sunday, we're starting a four-week sermon series that will take us to Easter Sunday. Okay. Okay? Uh, we're calling it Questioning Christianity, which is uh, very, um, you know, brilliant because we're questioning Christianity. Okay, so um, what we want you to do is write down your top question that you have about the faith, right? About the religion, about church, about theology. Write it down on an info card and we are going to tally them um, and then we're going to preach on the top four. Okay, so whatever you guys give, that's what we'll preach on, and that's going to lead us into Easter. You can invite friends, invite family. Okay, we already have our topic for next Sunday, and we're going to talk about the question of are all sins actually equal? Okay, are all sins actually equal before God, before man, before the world? Um, what does the Bible say about sin and its reality for us? Okay, so that's next week's, but write down your questions. We'll tally those, and then we'll have the next three weeks to announce to you uh, next Sunday. Sound good? We're going to have to work a lot harder today. Come on, sound good? All right. All right, turn to Judges chapter 17, okay? Pull out your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, uh, we'll have a couple people coming down the aisle here. I'd love for you to follow along in Scripture today because we are going over five chapters of Scripture. We're going to skip a lot, so I'd love for you to be familiar. So as they come down, raise your hand. We'll give you a Bible. If you don't own a Bible, you do now. This is our free gift to you. Please just take this home with you and read it and love it and share it, okay? Um, let me give background to where we're at. Today is the final Sunday, uh, the final sermon in the book of Judges, okay? We've been in this series, I think this is week eight of the book of Judges, uh, starting with a sermon uh, with Joshua, where Anthony gave us the entire book of Joshua in 40 to 45 minutes, and that sets the stage for what we see in the book of Judges, which is this. God told his people, I'm going to give you a land, I'm going to make you a nation, you will become this people so that you will go and bless the world. So he calls them into Canaan. He says, go and subdue the land, take over the land. This shall be your home. While Joshua, the leader of the people, is alive, this goes well, but he dies. There is no new leader to take over. And so this cycle begins for the people of God where they fail and fail and fail and go after new idols and chase after other gods and they commit sin and commit evil. And so God enslaves them by another people group. They are now uh, taken over by them and then they have to plead to God, God, please save us. We can't do this on our own. And so God comes in, raises up a judge, and they are delivered from whatever the calamity is. Last week, we did Gideon, okay? Uh, no, we didn't. We did Samson. Samson was last week, right? And Samson, maybe you've heard his story, right? Samson and Delilah, the strong man, right? He cuts his hair. He had the Nazarite vow. He cuts his hair. He loses his strength. And then in this act of both sacrifice and pure pride, he pulls down two pillars, killing thousands of his oppressors, and then they move on. And we are now in a place where the land is not experiencing rest because they did not go to the Lord. 
Now, the text we're going to look at today, five chapters of it, has a few interesting things about it. Before we get there, a disclaimer. I would say, especially chapters 19, 20, and 21, are three of the most difficult chapters to read as a human being today. The things that we'll talk about are terrible and egregious and unfortunately still happen to this day. And it is about as R to NC-17 rated as a text can be in Scripture. And so I do want to say this. Two things. One, if there are, and oftentimes we have kids that sit in with service, if you feel weird about this, please take them to kids' church at some point in the next 15 to 20 minutes. Okay. Also, some of you have struggled with some of the realities that we'll talk about today. And by struggled, I mean you've had things happen to you in your life that some of what we'll talk about might trigger memories or trigger pain or trigger hurt. And I just want to say a couple things to that. First, we love you, and we're so happy you're here. And we're excited to see how God uses his word this morning to bring about true transformation, change, and hope. But should that be you and something happens and you need to leave, please feel free to do that as we explore some of these topics that are super heavy, okay? That being said, um, what we're going to look at today is essentially how bad it got for Israel. So we've tracked throughout the entire book of Judges that they, they, they committed evil. They did all of these things, right? It says uh, that... that, that, that um, they did everything that was right in their own eyes. And it said that off, over and over and over that it started, every judge started with this idea that they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. But we never truly get to understand what that means. Like, like in, in the text, it says they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and then they just move on into the judge. We don't often get to step in and say, well, what was this evil? What did they truly do? Why was God so angry? Why would God commit this, uh, this uh, oppression to his own people? Today we get to get this uh, zoomed-in microcosm of a moment, I think, to truly understand just how bad it got for the people of God. Let me be very clear with this. What we study when we look at the Old Testament is the ancestry of the church today. These are our forefathers right? That we, we look back and say, okay, this is our people. So, I mean, imagine this, right? You go back and you have Ancestry.com, right? And there's this website of all these people where they go and they look at this website and then as they explore it, they find out, yeah, that their relatives were like slave owners and serial killers and all of these things. And you're like, man, that is, that's not the past that I dreamed for my family. And we need to understand today that as we look at these people, these are our people. It is going to be easy for us because of our self-righteousness to read these last five chapters and say, how could they? And I would never. And what were they thinking? These are God's people. If you're here and you're a Christian, this is who is doing the atrocity that we look at today. And so let us not pull ourselves from this text, but rather invite ourselves and draw ourselves in and say, okay, where and how could this be even for us today? Okay. A few nuggets before we jump into it. The last five chapters chronologically 
belong actually in the beginning of the book of Judges. And so what we see here in chapter 17 is actually what probably belongs towards the beginning of the book of Judges. And so what the author does here is brilliant, right? He draws us in and says, this is what's going on, this is what's going on, this is what's going on. And then we think it could not get any worse. And then 17 through 21 gets worse, but they show us this is actually what was happening at the beginning of the book. We get to step into this moment and say, this was what was happening with the people of God, with Israel. There's a couple references to it in the text, and I'll point them out as we get there. But think of any really good movie, and this happens all the time. If you've seen the movie Fight Club, right, they get to the end, and you find out that Ed Norton's character and Brad Pitt's character are the same person, right? So what do they do? They go flashback and flashback and flashback because now you see the movie through a different lens. Everything Now Ed Norton's character is in a garage beating himself up. Right Now Ed Norton is yelling at himself. Now Ed Norton, when he goes to shoot, Tyler actually shoots himself or vice versa. You get it. What we get when we understand this actually belongs at the beginning is we can now take this information and every time I think in the book of Judges where it says they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, it was stuff like this. And I think we'll be able to finally say, okay, God, I get it. Like, like maybe there's been this tension, at least for me, as I've been studying the text of like, God, was it really that bad? Like, was it really that bad that you had to sell your own people into slavery to other nations? And we're going to see today it was that bad. It was that bad, and it could be that bad for us as well. And the last thing I'll say before we jump into our word this morning. Um, throughout this book, we've moved really fast, Okay. And so we've, uh, we've taken chunks of the, each passage and chunks of Scripture. I want to encourage you to go back and read this book. Like, if you have not been following along and reading the text for yourself as you go, if you are not in the Bible reading God's holy word for yourself and you love Jesus, this is a problem, okay? And so I want to encourage us to go back to read this because today we're covering five chapters and maybe I'll read five little passages today. Go back and reread. And I want to use this moment to highlight uh, Scripture study. Oh, where's Holly? Are you, where, Holly, you still in here? Holly here on Thursday mornings, what time? At 8 a.m. at Fire Creek Coffee. At what? Yeah, Fire Creek Coffee is hosting Scripture Study Hall, which is simply, if you want to get together and read the Bible with other people, just show up there at 8 a.m. Thursday mornings and read the Bible with other people. You're not going to necessarily study anything together. It's just like you go to study hall in college, right, and you show up and there's people studying their own things. Same deal. Come and get in the Word of God and do it together. Be a presence in our city. Thursday mornings, 8 a.m., and I just wanted to point that out. Okay, here we go. Judges chapter 17. Verse 1, the first story of two stories we'll look at today. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Micah. Skipping to verse 5, and the man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and household gods and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own Eyes. We will see that line in this text, which we've said every single sermon in the book of Judges. We will see that text four different times that the people of God did what was right in their own eyes. They said, okay, this is what seems good and right to me, so this is what they did. So we get this, uh, this character named Micah introduced. And immediately we know he's not that good of a dude. So starting in verse 1, from verse 1 to verse 4, we find out that he was a thief. He stole jewelry from his mother, and he would use that for himself. And I relate to this at 12 years old. I stole jewelry from my mom, too, and gave it to my girlfriend at the time, okay? Yeah, 
We lasted three weeks. Okay. It wasn't nice jewelry, I guess. Then we find out he is an idolater. So then he takes this jewelry that has been stolen, although he went and apologized, but the mother gave it back to him. He takes this jewelry, and out of it he fashions idols. He fashions an ephod, which we learned earlier is a garment that would be worn to denote spiritual and religious authority. And so he builds and makes one of those. He builds carved images. He raises up other gods and idols in his home. This is a guy who is an Israelite, a man of God, and yet he is raising up other gods going directly against every commandment and law and thing he he knows to be true in his life, to not worship anyone but the one true God. And so the first moment we get to see how bad this guy is, what, we get to zoom in on what's going on in Israel. We find that the chief character already is a thief and an idolater. And then he appoints his own son to be his own private priest, which is not okay. Priests are meant to be for the public, to go out, to minister, to be a mediator. And yet he brings them and says, this is how important I am. This is how much I need this, that he appoints his own son to be his own personal priest. So Micah, not starting off very well. Verse 7. Now there was a young man of Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he sojourned there. So we get our second character in this first story. This is this Levite, this man who is from the tribe of the priests, is sojourning around. See, the Levitical people, the Levite people, rather, they did not have their own tribal land. So they did not have a whole nation or area for them to rule. Rather, they had 48 cities across the people of Israel that they could live in and plant themselves in. Bethlehem was not one of those. And so this man is traveling around Bethlehem looking for a place to call home, to settle in, to do what he is called to do. And he comes up to Micah. And Micah is going to offer him to be his personal priest instead of his son. And he offers a large sum of money. And we see in verse 11, the Levite was content to dwell with the man and the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite and the young man became his priest and was in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, now I know the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as priest. Okay, so, so here's what we see really in this first story. In, in chapter 17 and 18, we really get to zoom in on the spiritual and religious apostasy of the people of God. It had gotten so bad that they were apostate. They had completely rejected God, the things of God, spiritually and religiously. So what we have is a corrupt priest, right? A man who is to mediate for the public a God and man, the covenants that existed. And yet he is now being bribed and corrupted by Micah to go go and be his personal priest, and he agrees to it. Hey, I'll give you all this money, I'll give you clothing, I'll give you a home, I'll give you status, and he says yes. And so we begin to see the corruption of the people of God leak in on a spiritual and religious level. Now, there's a couple things happening here. There's religious corruption, but there's also, I think, this, this really wrong presumption of who God is. Because Micah, upon the uh, setting up of his new personal Levitical priest, says, now that I've got this guy, now I'm good. Right? Now that the Levitical priest, now that he's mine, then my life will be good. I will prosper because I've got this man in my home interceding for me. And I think this is a false understanding of who God is. That for some reason, some other man's righteousness was going to grant righteousness and prosperity for him. I have an older brother. He's seven years older. 
And, uh, and he, you know, he's not a Christian, and uh, he has no problem telling me that, so I don't have any problem telling you. And, uh, and oftentimes, we talk through the gospel. And I'll say, hey, man, what about this, and what about this? And he says one day to me, you know, it doesn't really matter. And I said, what do you, what do you mean it doesn't matter? He says, well, just when I, when I die, I'll tell him I know you. And I go, that's not going to work. And he says, why not? <laughs> and I say, because I'm not that good, Right? And he goes, well, you're good enough because you get to go, right? I said, yeah, but I don't get to go because of me. I get to go because of Jesus, right? See, there's this false understanding, even in my brother who is brilliant and smart and wise and a great person, that there's just something that is going to work out for him. And maybe it's knowing me. Maybe it's just being good enough. There's a false understanding of how God works even today, and we see it seep into the church and Israel way back when. So I think, again, this is the groundswell of what it meant for Israel to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord, so much as God would then put them and enslave them under other nations that would rule them, oppress them, and kill them. This is a big deal. Okay, let's keep going. Verse 18. In those days there was no king in Israel. It's the second time we get to see that. And in those days the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in. For until then no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. So 17 introduces Micah and these stories are going to come together. So in chapter 18, the tribe of Dan is now brought to the forefront. If we go back to Judges chapter 1, which we did when we started the book of Judges, we, realized, we saw that Dan was one of the tribes that failed at their conquest, the thing they were to go and do to take over the land, to find a place for themselves, to trust God. They did not do, and so now they are sojourning in the land, looking for where they are to dwell. Now, they're going to come to the house of Micah. And they're going to walk in after sending out a scouting party and seeing kind of what he has. The scouting party returns to them and they send 600 mighty men from the tribe of Dan to go and plunder the house of Micah. And so they show up, they break into his house, they steal his ephah, they steal his carved images and his idols and his wealth, and they take the priest also. So they want their own personal priest. So they go to the priest and they corrupt him further and say, what are you doing here just ministering to this one guy when you could come minister to this whole tribe and we'll give you more money and more status and you will be more powerful than before. And the priest all too quickly says, okay. And so over and over, do you see what's going on? They are subverting. They are saying, God, you know what? I know you've said these things, but this right now in my life seems better to me. Is this not us? Like, do we not just make decisions on the fly? Something comes on our doorstep and says, hey, what about this? And our ears are tickled. Our hearts come aflame. We say, I want that. And so regardless of what we know to be true, regardless of what the Bible says, we as Christians fall for it over and over and over again. And this is not something to be trifled with. It was something that God so, saw as so bad that he sold his own people over and over and over into slavery. Does this not happen to us, church? Do we not get confronted? Do we not go the other direction? Do we not just give in to the sin that seems so good in the moment and we find ourselves enslaved by that idol over and over and over again? 
This is not a new problem. I mean, this goes all the way back to the first garden with Adam and Eve, but we see it so prevalent in the people of God. This is our ancestry. This is who we are also, and we must learn. So, uh, Michael resists, you know, he gets upset, as any would, right? So he runs from his house, he sees what's happening, and this is just what's so funny to me. He runs from his house, he's like, what are you guys doing taking all my stuff? And the leaders of the tribe of Dan yell back to Micah, and paraphrasing, they say, what's the big deal? Like, what's the, can you imagine the audacity if I showed up to your house and I walked out with your TV and your computer and all of your clothing and everything else that you possessed, and I just left, and you said, what are you doing? And I said, chill out. Why are you mad? This is how it's gotten. They don't even see the wrong in what they're doing. Right? So they do it, and it's so obvious. Right? You, don't, you shouldn't be plundering your own people. You shouldn't be stealing from each other. You shouldn't be lying to each other, cheating on each other, insert whatever sin. But they had so moved towards a rejection of God. They had so moved towards this apostate state of mind, saying, God, we don't need you. We will take care of ourselves, that they did not even know the most common right from wrong. Everything just began to seem, we will do whatever we want. Again, is this not us this morning? Okay. So then the tribe of Dan, they move on. They go and they find uh, the, the region of Laish, Laish. And they go in there and they go and kill everyone. Okay. They kill everyone and they take the land and they set up idols. And this is now the home for the tribe of Dan. Murder and all sorts of terrible things. And they take over this place. And here's the last thing that we find in chapter 18. We finally get the identity of the priest who's been getting corrupted the whole time. And his name is Jonathan. And he is the grandson of Moses. Okay. So, so just imagine this, because I think as we read this story, and, and you know, not all, not, even including myself, you know, I don't know if I else often get the weight of sometimes how the text moves, but if, imagine if you're watching this in a film, Right, we're at, we're at the end, you see, you see a movie, and all of a sudden the person you thought was like the good guy is actually the bad guy, right? And it's this crazy reveal. It's Darth Vader type of situation, okay? This story unfolds like this. Who is this crazy priest who is being bought out by the highest bidder? Who's supposed to mediate the covenant of God, and yet is just, all right, whatever you want. And it's Moses' grandson, Right, like, like Moses, like the, the dude, the patriarch of the faith, the guy who took a staff and demanded that his people be let go from Egypt, who um, through God's power brought ten plagues upon the land of Egypt, the guy who came and parted a sea again in God's power, who led the people of God through the wilderness, this guy who brought the law down from Mount Sinai, Moses, the guy, the dude, what the heck, how could his grandson two generations removed, be the guy who we see in this story. What has happened to the people of God? How, how have we gotten here to where a guy who the assumption would be, he should be kind of crushing it. Now, I think we've maybe put on a 2016 lens on this in Western 
liberal America and say, like, I, you know, I'm looking at Finley most days and I'm like, yeah, there's a, I don't know, hopefully you turn out like a good person, but there's no guarantee. And that's just the truth. Like, I'm not trying to, like, we pray and we're going to invest and we're going to try and, and do what we can as a husband and wife to care for our son, but I don't know. But if you go back to the context and the environment, what a man to be in, in an Israeli tribe, to be a person of God, a person of the law, a person of the covenant. Like, you did not just go your own direction. It wasn't go find yourself. It was, no, do what you know to be true. The law is binding. You are one of God's people. And so this was just an incredibly scandalous moment. And I can only imagine for the people of Israel when they realized this is the guy. Wait a minute. So this is our first story, okay? This shows the spiritual, the religious apostasy of Israel. A zoom in on what it meant for them to do evil. Story two, and I know I'm going quick through the narrative, and I know it might be a little rushed, but we've got to get through three more chapters, then we'll circle back and say, what does this mean for us as we wrap up this book? Chapter 19, verse 1. In those days when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in a remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. If you don't know what a concubine is, essentially a woman brought into the home, brought into the family, if you will, whose primary purpose was procreation, but oftentimes devolved into a just kind of sex partner. Okay, so that's what a concubine was. Verse 2, and his concubine was unfaithful to him. And she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah and was there for some four months. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back. Okay, so he, he realizes, I guess, the error of his ways. He wants her to come back to him, so he travels to her homeland to go to her father's house, to go where she is. And, and I've talked about this, I'm pretty sure, before from this pulpit. Has anyone, you've seen the movie Jerry Maguire, right? And, and, and when uh, Tom Cruise enters into the living room at the end of the movie, right? And Renee Zellweger's there, and she's with a group of divorced women, and they're all hanging out, and he walks in, and he's like, hello, right? I need to talk to my wife. And everyone's like, oh, this is so romantic. And he goes on this long speech about how important she is to him. And he lays out flattery after flattery after, I need you, and tonight wasn't the same without you, and you're my boo. And it's just like going on and on and on, right? And the crescendo moment of this whole thing, the line that even those who haven't seen the movie probably know is, you complete me, right? And every woman melts, like, oh my God, I want that, right? And she says to him, you have me at hello, right? You have me at hello. And it is this neat scene. And this is what, honestly, I picture in this moment. And in this moment, I'm like, okay, there's this glimmer of hope for the people. As, as, and I know the whole context of what we're reading. There's this glimmer of hope. You have this man who realized, it seems, the, what he did wrong. So he chases after his woman in the greatest rom-com moment you've ever seen. You complete me. Come back. And she agrees. And the father is so delighted at what he sees. He invites, uh, he invites the Levite to stay in his home for five nights and says, stay here. Let us eat. Let us drink. Let us be married together for we have seen a good work. So there's this hope in the midst. Okay, maybe, maybe there's something good. 
Maybe, just maybe, this is going to make a better turn for the people of God. Maybe this is in there so it shows us that it's all going to be all right. And the story, unfortunately, continues. Okay. Um, he chooses to stay for five or six nights, and then he goes and travels. And uh, on his way back, stops in a city named Gibeah. Okay. And whilst in Gibeah, this should be a friendly city. Okay, it's a Benjaminite city, an Israeli city. It should be friendly and safe for him and his concubine. But he gets invited in from an Ephraimite uh, fellow sojourner. And they eat and they drink. And this is where the story begins to go really, really bad. Because as they eat and they drink, a horde of men from the city of Gibeah, Benjaminite people, people of God, Christians, if you will, show up in a horde of men and demand that this man be thrown out, that they might know him. Okay? And this is in the biblical sense, that they might rape him, that they might have sexual relations with this man. And so the owner of the home says, no, this is not going to happen. We're not going to do this. Get out of here. Why are you asking for this? This is bad. This is wrong. This is sin. Yet they press further. And they press further. Okay. And you get the scene, and it's probably just chaos. And so in this moment, where this man, this, this, this Levite man, I think has a choice. Do I go out to them? Or do we fight? Or do I do the third option? Which is he grabs his concubine. This woman who just days earlier, he had poured his soul over to say, I need you, I want you, come back to me. And he grabs this woman and he throws her out the front door. And she all night long is raped by the entire horde of men. And, and you just think of the options for this guy in the moment. The woman with whom he says to love, and then in an instant, when the pressure became on him, when the sacrifice would be on him, he relinquishes and he gives over this woman, and she is raped repeatedly through the evening. What, what has happened to the people of God? So he goes to bed, I guess, wakes up the next morning, and opens up the front door. And there's his concubine laying at the front door. And you would imagine he says, oh, thank God. Or he says, are you okay? And he bends down and holds her. No, and says he, instead he just looks at her and says, get up. We got to go. Get up. And there's no response. And so he kneels down, I'm guessing, and realizes she's dead. And so these men had taken her and raped her and murdered her and left her for dead at the doorstep. Okay. And he comes out, and you would think again, now there would be this weeping, there would be this remorse, there would be this pain that would well up because someone he loved was now gone. Instead, he goes the other direction. Instead, he feels this revenge moment. I think what he begins to think through is like, wait a minute, this might be somewhat my fault. I kind of also did this. And so how do I wiggle my way out of this? And so he takes this woman whom he loves, 
and he cuts her into 12 pieces, dismembers this woman, and sends a piece of her to each tribe of the tribe of Israel so that the tribe of Israel's anger would be kindled against the Benjaminite people and they would have their revenge. So he goes about his own way of doing things. There's no remorse. There's no seeking the Lord. There's just, here's what I'm going to do. And I think it's probably because he didn't want to get in trouble at some level. He says, let me take this woman. Let me, let me cut her up so that the tribes will believe me of this story. And then we move into chapter 20. And this is where we get the assembly of the people of God. The assembly of Israel gathers to hear from this Levite. Hey, what's the story? Like, we, we got your package. Like, we don't know what's going on. What's the story here? And he begins to lay it out. And my guess is, is he probably left out the fact that he threw his concubine out to these men. But he tells them the story. My guess is he says something like this. He says, yeah, we were just having dinner. And then these men came and they took, the, took my concubine. They took this woman that I loved and they did this to her. And so I had to get my revenge. And so probably puffing himself up as the righteous one in this story. And so the anger of Israel is indeed kindled. And they go to Benjamin. And they go to the tribe of Benjamin. And they say this in verse 12. The tribes of Israel sent men uh, through all the tribe of Benjamin saying, What evil is this that has taken place among you? Now, therefore, give up the men, the worthless fellows in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and purge evil from Israel. So again, okay, here, here's the way I see it. Again, maybe this glimmer of hope, right? So, so maybe, okay, if we know this at the beginning of the story, maybe, okay, now they want to purge evil from Israel, right? It's evil that brought them under slavery continuously over and over. They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And here we see Israel saying, no, we need to get rid of the evil. We need to purge the evil from Israel. So there's this glimmer of hope. Maybe, just maybe, this is finally where it turns the corner after eight weeks of sitting in the brokenness and pain that is the book of Judges. And we'll see how long this lasts. We'll see how long this lasts. So um, in verse 13 continued, but the Benjaminites would not listen to the voice of their brothers, the people of Israel. So the Benjaminites now find themselves defending rapists, defending murderers. Again, completely having lost sight of right and wrong. What is truly justice? God is a just God giving people what they deserve, both good and bad, righteous and unrighteous. And they have missed a just God. They do not know him. They do not know right from wrong. And so they say, no, we're not going to give you these guys despite the fact that they raped and murdered this woman. And so it's on, okay? Israel gathers together and they get 400,000 men together to fight against the Benjaminite people who rally together 26,700 people, 700 of which were very skilled at slings, and so they end up in the first two attacks between the two battles, the two first real uh, engagements between Israel and the tribe of Benjamin. Israel loses a decisive defeat, losing 40,000 men in the first two battles. Then they, uh, all this while, are talking to God. God, should we be doing this? Should we go? Should we go? And then on the third attack, God finally says that he will hand them over. 
God says, listen, okay, now go and I will give Benjamin. I will exercise my justice upon them and what they have done. And so they go and attack the third time. And in verse 35, it says this, And the Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel. And the people of Israel destroyed 25,100 men of Benjamin that day. All these were men who drew the sword. So the people of Benjamin saw that they were defeated. And the conquest continues. And they chase after the tribe of Benjamin. Although the smallest tribe in Israel, still a tribe of power and something to to be protected and cared for in the people of God, and yet they track them down to the point where there are only 600 men left in the entire tribe of Benjamin. In the people of God. Imagine this. Just years, okay? A couple of generations before this, this entire people group was taken by the hand of Moses, by the power of God, out of Egypt together, this unified people who had this common enemy, and now they were to come into this beautiful promised land where life would be great, where they would be blessed to be a blessing, and yet now we find themselves a couple generations down the road, just maybe, let's say, 60, 70, 80 years max, and all of a sudden they are destroying each other. How quickly sin can work how quickly evil permeates and destroys and tears apart even the most unified of groups. And so they go in, there's 600 people left, and they begin to wonder, what should we do? So in, verse, in chapter 21, it says this, Now the men of Israel had sworn at Mizpah, no, uh, no one of us shall give his daughter in marriage to Benjamin. And the people came to Bethel and sat there till evening before God. And they lifted up their voices and wept bitterly. And they said, O Lord, the God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel? That, there, that, that, that today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel. So they begin to feel compassion for their brother. Maybe just fear of what God would do. I'm not sure, but they begin to wonder, what are we going to do? Benjamin's only got 600 men left. Their tribe is going to die out. One of the 12 tribes of Israel will be gone. And so they begin to concoct this plan. How are we going to do this? And so they devise this plan. They don't seek God. They just say, this is what seems right to us. And say, hey, who didn't make that meeting? Like, who didn't show up to the assembly when we first were going to go to war? And someone yells out, Jabesh Gilead. The Jabesh Gilead didn't come. And they say, okay, great. Let's get 12,000 men together and we'll go and we'll attack and we'll kill everyone at Jabesh Gilead except for 400 virgins and we will kidnap them and then give them to the tribe of Benjamin. And this is exactly what they do. People of God. Men and women submitting to his lordship or should they have been. And they get together, these people, they go and kill their own people to kidnap 400 women and force them to be in these relationships and marriages with these men of Benjamin, whom they just destroyed. What has happened to the people of God? Now they find, hey guys, we, there's still 200 men that don't have wives yet, so we've got to figure this out. So then there's a festival that's happening just north of where they're at. It's a festival to the Lord in Shiloh. And they say, okay, well, we can go and get some women up there as well. And they show up and the men come around. They surround the camp and there's dancing and it's a festival and there's joy and there's merriment. And they go in and they snatch and they kidnap 200 more women from this area at Shiloh to give to the tribe of Benjamin. And again, almost in a repetition of events, the fathers come out of these women and say, where are you going with our daughters? 
And in the same way, they pretty much say, what's the big deal? This is better for you anyway. And they have this series of reasons why that make no sense whatsoever. And they kidnap these women and they give them to the left, the 200 men left in the tribe of Benjamin who did not have a wife. So here's what we've got when we summarize this story. We've got corruption. We've got the people were supposed to mediate God's love and covenant to the people of Israel, right? Or being bought out or succumbing to their own personal desires, their personal fleshly things. You got people who are, who are thieves, they're stealing, they're killing each other, they're raping women, they're murdering, and they're not holding anyone accountable for it. They think there's no right from wrong. They do whatever is right in their own eyes. This is the people of God. It was one thing, right, when you read in some of the stories, and when you go back to Genesis and we read the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, Gomorrah you're like, okay, but that's not God's people, right? So that, that makes sense, God. Like, they, they don't know you. How, so so it makes, they, we, they would do a trial. They don't know God. This just debunks all that. That people who know God can do great and terrible things when they forget Him, when they abandon Him, when they say, I don't need you, when they start to say, I know better than you know, when they start to think sin isn't that big a deal when they begin to devalue certain types of people in their communities, when they begin to think that minorities, when they begin to think that women, when they begin to think that people of other colors and other races and other faiths, I'm talking about us right now, when we begin to say, you're not as important as me, and so I can do whatever I want to do to them. What has happened to the people of God? So the book of Judges ends with that famous verse. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So at the end of this book, the, summari the, uh, the summarization of the whole thing, there was no king. They made themselves king. They did whatever they wanted. And so here's where we land as the people of God today, in the church today. For what does this mean for us right now? Now, because when we look at this story, it feels like straight out of the Game of Thrones, right? But the reality is, is Game of Thrones was straight out of the Bible. Like the, like the things you see, you know, this stuff happened in history by our people, right? The, the, the things that, this is how terrible it has gotten. And the reality is, is that you and I, and I'm putting myself out there with you, that we welcome Sometimes we chase after the very thing that causes this stuff to happen. And it's sin. And it's idolatry. Like the things that we read in here, the, the, the stories through Scripture where just make you cringe. or like, how could this happen? And it's sin. It's the pursuit of things that are not God. And you and I today in 2016 will leave this place and not only will we welcome it into our lives, sometimes we'll chase after it and say, I want this in my life. I, this will give me hope and pleasure and joy and so I want this right now. And then we look at this story and say, how could this happen? It happens because we pursue it. I 
want to be very clear to say this in the midst of a lot of the context of the, of the Scripture. That there are often times where the sin that happens to you, the destruction and the brokenness that you experience is directly because of someone else's sin and not your own. Okay. Especially as we get into topics like rape and abuse. That is not you. That is not your sin. But it is sin. It is the reality that there is this new structure and system that is over the world that has been there since Genesis chapter 3 which causes the destruction and the pain and the hurt of every man, woman, child, and created thing in this world. And we are part of that brokenness. And we pursue it and we go after it and we welcome it into our hearts. May it not be for the people of God. There's a reason why God called Israel to be a holy, set-apart people, to be a people that did not pursue idolatry, did not pursue sin. It's because they were supposed to bless the world, not be part of its destruction. And church, you are supposed to bless the world, not be part of its destruction. And I fear that I'm just part of something where am I just buying in to this lie that has caused the hurt and the pain of literally billions of people throughout history? And man, do I need to repent. The church needs to repent. The people of God need to say, we blew it. And we need to start acting like we're supposed to because sin corrupts everything on the inside and the outside. It corrupted Israel and Canaan. It corrupts the church today and the world. There's this quote I want to read to you from Daniel Block, and he says this, No other book in the Old Testament offers the modern church as telling a mirror as this book. This book is a wake-up call for a church more abundant in its own selfish pursuits. Instead of heeding the call of truly godly leaders and letting Jesus Christ be Lord of the church everywhere, congregations and their leaders do what is right in their own eyes. What are we, Redemption Flagstaff? And I realize not all of you, this is your home. Maybe you're visiting. Maybe you'll never come back. I don't know. But if you're here and this is your home, we have things that we should not pursue, that we should not care about at the levels we do. It's not about how many of you are here this morning. It's never going to be about that, and it shouldn't be. It's never about the amount of people we baptize. It's never about how holy or how good we are at anything. It's only every time about the goodness and glory of God. It is only about us saying, He is Lord and deserves everything we can give to Him. So if that means that only one person shows up next week and it's me and I'm saying, God, you're Lord, then we're in a good place. As opposed to this room was packed out and we're preaching a gospel that moves us nowhere but towards sin. And I, he says, and you are just a necessary part of that as me. Every single person in this room, if you are a Christian, you are as responsible with the preaching and the proclamation of the gospel to a world that needs it as the pastor, as the leader of your small group, as whoever you look up to. This is a people of God's story. This was not one judge's fault. It's not Micah's fault. It's not, the one, it's not Jonathan's fault. It's not the Levitical priest's fault. It's not just the horde of men uh, at Gibeah. It is our 
problem to figure out. And we need to do it. So, I guess I just asked this morning, whose kingdom are we building? Both here at our church and in your life, are you looking to build your own kingdom? To create your own status, your own fame, your own glory, your own insert, whatever it is you want? Or are you here and are you part of God's people because you care about His glory and His kingdom? And I'll tell you this, there is much joy to be had in the pursuit of the mission and glory of God. It's a favorite quote that I have. It's by this man, Christopher Wright. And he says this, he says, the, uh, the mission was not made for the church, but the church was made for mission. Okay. Mission was not made for the church. It's not like God created this people and he thought to himself, ah, I got to give them something to do. No, no, no. The church was created to be part of God's redemptive mission in the world. And when you become a Christian, when you give your life over, that's what you've agreed to. And for too long, and maybe even here, we have preached a gospel in the church that says just come and be saved and be happy. But we cannot look at our Bibles and just say, man, there's not something there's not some mission that we're supposed to be part of. There's a reason when you studied the book of Acts that, the, that the, the religion exploded. And I think it's because one, they knew Jesus, and two, they knew their mission. And it was all together. I was talking to Anthony the other day, and I know I'm going long, and I apologize. It's a long text. Give me a break. I was talking to Anthony the other day, and we were just talking about some of the problems that exist in our world. So you've got ISIS, right, going on in Syria, Iraq. What does it look like if the two billion, give or take, right, that claim Christianity across our world, what, what if we were united? Like, what if two billion Christians in our world were united? And that's a pipe dream. I get it. There's all sorts of division. There's different things, whatever. But let's just say two billion Christians across, this, across the world, and we said, let's gather together. Let's have an assembly. And we're going to send 10 million. And they're going to go there. And they're going to pray. And they're going to lay their lives down. And they're going to preach the gospel. And if they die, then guess what? We die. But we go to heaven as soon as that happens. What if there were a people that were so insured of their eternal destination, that were so insured of their calling, that were so insured about the reality that Christ is their Savior, has done everything necessary for them here and eternal, that they would lay everything down for the sake of His surpassing glory and knowledge to the world? What, what if that people existed? And the problem is, is that we say that we do. We say we exist. We say we're that people. And we do it when we admit to saying, I want to be a Christian. Because that's the calling that gets brought into this that we leave behind and check at the door and we can no longer do it. I fear that as much as I think that I'm doing a good job as a Christian, I'm just on the sidelines like it seems the rest of the churches. And I don't mean our church. I mean the church across the world. We spend all this time bickering and fighting on Facebook when there's people dying, literally dying at night in the city of Flagstaff because they don't have a place to sleep. There is literally 
women being abused and mistreated, and yet we spend 10 hours a day watching Netflix. There is literally, insert the brokenness of this world, and we find ourselves just saying, well, my time is that more important than theirs. And there is grace, and there is mercy. And I know this can come across, and I hate preaching this type of message because it sounds like get out there and do it and be better and be better and let me land with this, and I promise you I'll be done. This is not about us being better because you can't be. It's about us just actually believing what we say we believe. It's about us actually being Christians. You see, Jesus, Jesus was the sojourning mediator priest who indeed does bring prosperity to the individual. So this Levitical guy who comes into Michael's life, he could do nothing. But Jesus was the perfect mediator who comes in, dies on your behalf, dies on my behalf when we could not. And so now he does give his life and his prosperity to us. That does not mean money. That means life. Jesus is the sojourning Levite who doesn't send us out to die, but rather goes himself and sacrifices his own life. He lays his own life. When the choice comes to his front door, he puts his life down and sends sending you out to the death that you and I deserve. Jesus is the king of this world who rules over all things. And he has to become the king of our hearts and of our minds and of our church. And when he does that, we don't leave here trying to be better. We just leave here trying to love Jesus because he's accomplished everything we could not. That is the gospel. Is that we could read and be so weighed down by the realities of the brokenness world mixed with the mission of the church and say, God, I will not relent, I will not fall down, I will not cower because you are with me, because your rod and staff protect me, because you have gone before me, because you accomplished that which I could not accomplish. We do all of this in response to the gospel. If you just go and try and be better, you will fail. If you go and try and love Jesus, truly love Jesus, not the watered-down version, which I think we've adopted in the church today. If we actually go and love Jesus, I think the world looks different than it does today. And I need you to be part of that. The city of Flagstaff needs the church to wake up. The mission was not created for us. We were created for the mission. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for stories like this. There's so much pain that honestly exists in this room right now. People who are hurting, 
people who are suffering, people who are cycling through memories and brokenness and whatever. God, who are anxious and nervous about what is to come, who are fearful of what is. God, we have to acknowledge and we pray you give us just extra grace and extra faith to just see sin for how destructive it is. God, I confess that I often just play with it. I dabble in it. I welcome it at my doorstep. And Lord, sometimes I chase after it, Lord. And I confess, Lord, and I pray you give me the strength and power to repent, to turn the other way, God, and to pursue you. God, I pray that for our people here today. God, that we would see clearly why, why you even brought this people together. And I confess that I just oftentimes think of my church family as just my closest friends and we get to just live this awesome life. And God, all of that is true, but the awesome part has to include your work. And I say sorry that I blow that all the time. So Lord, I just want to pray for our church. God, I pray that you would just point us to something greater. And Lord, that it would start with you. God, in our desires to just go and be better and pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and just be the people we're supposed to be, God, I pray you just knock us down, that we would just return to your cross and return to your resurrection. God, that we'd be so entrenched in the love for you that obviously we carry out the demands of our Father. God, I pray that you would not let us get comfortable We've been comfortable for far too long. And so, God, we need you because, honestly, this has to be a work of your Spirit to, to transform our hearts and renew our minds, Lord. So please, Holy Spirit, as we respond, as we worship, God, would you come in and just make us more like Jesus? How we are hopeless without him. We need you, Lord. We need you, Lord. I mean, all I need is you. God, you're so good, and I'm rambling because you're amazing, but Lord, bless us as we respond to you. Make us more like your son, that we could be part of your mission in this world, that God, the stories that we looked out at this book, God, would not be the story of our present reality. It's in your name we pray. Amen.